Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorka. Africa, amuka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet, Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabitha Luhoko, and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa might reconsider its withdrawal from the ICC and concerns over growing tension within South Africa's ruling African National Congress. In economics news, Zimbabwe's Reserve Bank defends looming bond notes introduction and in sports news, South Africa names squad to face Senegal in a FIFA World Cup qualifier. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. South Africa's ambassador to the United States, Jerry Machila, has met privately with the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon in New York to explain the country's reason for withdrawing as a party to the International Criminal Court. Machila explained South Africa's continued commitment to upholding human rights and that it was likely to meet with the ICC prosecutor Fatal Bin Soda in New York next week. Machila says the UN chief and several other ambassadors have offered to work with South Africa through the state's parties to address its concerns. The discussion was what can we do to assist you to remain? And I refer them to the argument that we made in our statement on the attempts, many attempts we made as South Africa to effect certain changes and to harmonize the obligations under the Rome Statutes, under the AU Constitutive Act, and our own um, parliament, that we need to harmonize these things as member states. And all of them says, okay, let's try to do, let's, let's try to do something. And we said, look, it's, it's up to member states, especially state parties to the ICC, to the REM statute. It's up to them. If they work and they harmonize, they address our concerns, South Africa maybe will sit and reconsider. A man who police have described as a criminal has been shot dead outside the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi, Kenya. The man is said to have attacked and injured a Kenyan police officer. The motive is not clear, but no U.S. Embassy personnel were involved in the incident. Kenya's police say an investigation is underway. Two Eritrean pilots have defected with their fighter jets to neighboring Ethiopia, according to the Ethiopia-based Red Sea, a far democratic organization. The two pilots flew their small-sized fighter jets to Mekela on Wednesday morning. Ethiopian fighter jets accompanied them upon their entry into the country's airspace. A witness says Ethiopian jets were flying very low and conducting unusual turns in the northern city. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime says the fight against human trafficking is increasingly moving center stage as an issue for the international community. Human trafficking affects every country of the world as countries of origin, transit or destination. Speaking at an event at the UN focusing on the ratification of the Palermo Protocol, an instrument to prevent, suppress and punish traffickers, the executive director of UNODC, Yuri Fedotov, said fighting crimes such as trafficking was critical to meeting new development targets. The focus on crime is no longer on the periphery of building sustainable development. It is moving center stage and it is increasingly being recognized as a significant barrier to the achievement of the sustainable development goals. And finally, Liberian President Ellen Johnson Salif has called on the international community to put more investments into the eye, healthcare and research fields to ensure that unnecessary blindness and visual impairment is eradicated worldwide. The World Health Organization says over 200 million people are blind or visually impaired globally. Johnson Salif was speaking at the opening ceremony of the 10th General Assembly of the International Agency for Prevention of Blindness held in South Africa. 
Africa's coastal city, Durban. She says blindness and visual impairment hinder development and remains a socio-economic problem, especially in Africa where at least 20 million people are visually impaired or blind. She says more needs to be done to ensure the sustainable development goals adopted by the United Nations last year are realized. We must work together to build the appropriate eye health infrastructure and develop the human resource capacity to meet current challenges. Governments and agencies around the globe need to ensure that eye health is sustainable through integration into wider health services. That's the news. It lands at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and it's 8.06 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's ambassador to the United Nations says Pretoria might reconsider its withdrawal from the International Criminal Court if states' parties to the Rome Statute address its concerns. Ambassador Jerry Majila was speaking exclusively to the SABC in New York after he paid a courtesy call on UN Security Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to explain government's position to withdraw from the Hague-based court. The UN chief is said to have expressed his regret at the decision and offered to facilitate a meeting at the UN next week between Majila and the visiting ICC prosecutor Fatou Bensouda. Show and Bryce Peace reports. A picture tweeted by Burundi's ambassador to the United Nations of his country's justice minister hand-delivering a letter to the Secretary-General's chief of staff, making theirs the second country to officially withdraw from the Rome Statute. South Africa's ambassador, Jerry Machila, speaking to us immediately after his meeting with the Secretary-General. I was um, a pilgrimage call to convey the South African um, intention to withdraw from the Rome statue and to explain the rationale behind it, but also to confirm that uh, our commitment to human rights and to fight impunity is not diminished, that we will remain active uh, participant in all the human rights uh, situations, all the human rights uh, discussions, but also to say to Secretary General, we will be uh, members of the ICC until next year, so we're not going to be less active, mm-hmm. less committed on the ICC uh, issues. Makila says the UN chief and several other ambassadors have offered to work with South Africa through the state's parties to address its concerns. The discussion was what can we do to assist you to remain? And I refer them to the argument that we made in our statement on the attempts, many attempts we made as South Africa to effectively changes and to harmonize the obligations under the Rome Statutes, under the AU Constitutive Act, and our own um, parliament, that we need to harmonize these things as member states. And all of them says, okay, let's try to do, let's, let's try to do something. And we said, look, it's, it's up to member states, especially state parties to the ICC, to the REM Statute. It's up to them. If they work and they harmonize, they address our concerns, South Africa maybe will sit and reconsider because we didn't just, just withdraw, just overnight and withdraw. It was a, you know, a, a process. With further concerns expressed by officials here that given South Africa's stature in Africa, this could be the beginning of a mass exodus from the continent. I just raised this issue and some ambassadors. I said, but we join as individuals to ICC. <laughs> I don't see withdrawing as a mass at the ICC. People, are the People have their own national circumstances, considerations to withdraw or to join. So, but I, I, I believe that um, the and Secretary General understand that the issues raised by Africa needs to be addressed, need to be looked at. I don't think Africa just want to withdraw sick of withdrawing. I think it's, um, it's, um, it's a reflection that perhaps you don't have people listening on the other side. 
The ambassador also confirming to us that the Secretary General will make the meeting with the ICC prosecutor happen next week, and while outcomes cannot be predicted, Fatou Ben Souda herself doesn't have the power to alter the incompatibilities that South Africa has expressed regarding its commitments elsewhere and those of the Rome Statute. In addition, other government sources have informed the SABC that Ambassador Machila is merely being diplomatic in his engagements here and that South Africa's decision to leave the ICC is final, with more African countries expected to follow suit. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says the growing tension within the ranks of the ruling African National Congress has the potential to derail the party's mission to remain the custodian of the country's democratic gains. The president was speaking at the ceremony to commemorate the 99th birthday of the party's late stalwart Oliver Tambo in Benoni, east of Johannesburg. Tsepo Ekaneng has more. Oliver Reginald Tambo is a long-serving president of the ANC, leading the party in exile for a period spanning more than three decades. Together with Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu, they formed the militant ANC Youth League in 1944. He is described as the ANC's moral compass and the glue that held the liberation movement together in exile. He passed away on April 24, 1993, after suffering a stroke, and today would have marked his 99th birthday. Hundreds of people converged at Tamboville Cemetery to come pay homage to a man affectionately known as O.R. President Zuma laid a wreath at his burial site before delivering a keynote address. We are celebrating a man who was never obsessed with himself and the position he held in the organization. He was humble. The president used his speech to reflect on Tambo's legacy. However, President Zuma was compelled to comment on the ongoing public space within the ANC. ANC Chief Whip Jackson Mtembu caused a stir when he called for the resignation of the entire NEC following the ruling party's poor performance at the August municipal polls. Mtembu's utterances sparked fierce outbursts from his detractors. President Zuma had invoked Tambo's legacy and warned that disunity and lack of discipline could destroy the ANC. As we celebrate and remember him over this period leading up to his centenary next year, let us see things differently. Let us work on solutions, not problems. Let us be comrades. Let us unite. Let us not see enemies among ourselves. Let us not be divided. If there are difficulties, let us address them comradely and with dignity. Because if we don't, the task to lead this country will be more difficult. The executive mayor of Ekuruleni Metro, Mzwandile Masina, has also laid into Mtembu, accusing him of ill-discipline. We can't allow the situation where our movement is being teared apart because we lack discipline. We want to use occasions like this to call for the ANC to return to its original values which Oliver Tambo stood for, to ensure that only those that are designated to speak for the ANC raises issues internally so that we do not tear the movement apart. Oliver Tambo left with the African National Congress intact. We would want President Zuma and the leadership of the ANC that you leave the ANC to us at a particular point in time intact. Conference will come, conference will go, the ANC must remain solid in the, in the country. Meanwhile, President Zuma says the current socio-economic challenges should not propel the nation into despair. The ANC-led government has been battling with containing discontentment over poor service delivery, high cost of living, and a wave of protests over tertiary university fee hikes. President Zuma has appealed to citizens to exercise patience and allow government to address their plight. We as a country owe an eternal debt of gratitude to giants such as O.R. Tambo, who envisioned and spearheaded the fight for a free and just South Africa. However, we must, as a people, never allow ourselves to descend to the level of 
despondent viewing these challenges and hurdles. On the ongoing Face Must Fall campaign, the Chief Executive Officer of the OR and Adelaide Tambo Foundation, Lindam Vilagazi, has accused government leaders and broader society of failing to respond adequately to what she refers as genuine student demands. I think it's a tragedy where we find ourselves as a nation in terms of the fees must fall because the students have in the last two years very clearly raised the issue of access and said we need to ensure that every person with merit has access to university. Let us not put the burden on the student to justify their poverty before we can give them access because that's been one of the subtle exclusionary clauses in access to education. So my feel is as adults today in South Africa, both business and government, we have failed young people. There are a series of high-profile events planned to mark O.R. Tambo's centenary commemoration next year. South Africa's ruling African National Congress Chief Whip in Parliament, Jackson Mtembu, is expected to receive a tongue lashing from senior party members during the governing party's National Executive Committee meeting, which gets underway today. This is after Mtembu called for the resignation of the entire NEC, following the poor August elections performance. ANC structures such as the Youth League and the Military Veterans Association, MKMVA, has already called Form Tembu to be disciplined. Amos Pajo has more. Because we have messed up, we have lost confidence of our people, we lost three metros, and uh, as you will know, we have got to regain that confidence of our people. In the meeting that looked at our loss in the local government elections of 2016 in the NEC, we took collective responsibility. I then also requested the NEC that we must also take a collective form for the mess that we have created. It's these comments by the ANC's chief whip and senior member Jackson Mtembu that sent tongues wagging within the governing party's ranks. Amongst those strongly opposed to Mtembu's comments is the ANC Youth League, which believes that he has brought the governing party into disrepute and must therefore be charged. Youth League National Spokesperson Mlondi Mkiza says Mtembu's utterances are worrying. Our view is that Comrade Jackson should have uh, kept the NWC discussions outside of the public domain because those are NWC uh, uh, meetings and discussions. This uh, speaks to the level of trust that we can give to the Comrade. If he discloses NWC meetings of the ANC, how certain are we that he's not going to disclose confidential information of the National Assembly? We are speaking about someone here uh, who was caught drinking and driving, busy singing struggle songs. We are not sure whether that's the credibility that he is speaking about that we must have in the public, in the Republic of South Africa and in the ANC. We are speaking about someone who told us that we must not buy city press, but he uses the same city press uh, to communicate his individual views. The MKMVA has also come down hard on Mtembu, accusing him of sowing divisions within the ranks of the ANC by lobbying other party members to resign from the NEC, MKMVA chairperson KB Mapatwe. I think Jackson Mtembu has fictionalized uh, a parliament, and uh, we, we really want to recommend the NEC to remove him as a chief whip in Parliament because it's going to be uh, a problem in Parliament. In fact, the Parliament is not going to function properly. It is going to, fu- to, to function in a fictional way because he will deploy his own people in this portfolio committee. He will end up speaking against the decisions of the National Executive Committee. We are beginning to see a parallel National Executive Committee in Parliament led by Congress Jackson in terms. So the sooner the NEC take a disciplinary action against Section Mtembu, the better. Thus far, ANC spokesperson Zizu Godwa says Mtembu remains the party's chief whip in parliament, despite calls for his removal. The ANC is a democratic organization. All people who, sh- who share different views in the organization, they are honest, and we understand them from the point of view of the ANC. does not mean when you have a different view in the organization because of your deployment, therefore you must be shifted or moved. But that issue, Jackson has already indicated that he, in the next meeting of the organization, he will exchange or express his same view. We are looking forward to the organization 
that you will express the views expressed in public in the formal structures of, of the organization. Ntembu said he would not be availing himself for a position in the ANC come 2017 when the party elects new leadership. He announced that he would rather go back to his branch in Bumalanga and make a contribution through political education. However, the Bumalanga Provincial Executive Committee has warned that he is not welcomed. Political analyst Tinyeko Maluleke says the public attacks are not an indication of a dead end from Tembu. The NEC will not resolve that the NEC resigns. I also don't think the top six of the NEC will resign, nor do I think that Jackson Mtembu himself will be forced to resign as actions of uh, the alliance partners and the ANC itself, particularly the youth league have suggested. But I think what the NEC will not be able to avoid is a discussion of the issues behind the issues that Jackson Mtembu was raising. And the issues there are a party that is ripped apart by factions, a party that is inept and unable to respond effectively to the message sent to it by the voters in the uh, August local elections, a party that seems to be latching from one crisis to the next, managing crisis almost on a permanent basis. The meeting come at a time when government is failing to end ongoing violence at institutions of higher learning as part of the free education protest, the charging of Finance Minister Pravin Godan, as well as an alleged internal document which shows that the ANC structures want President Jacob Zuma to resign. Maluleke says the ANC will have to do more than just talking in order to regain the public trust it once had. I'm Amos Power in Pretoria. Change your game. Be the voice of young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your game. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs educates and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10.45 a.m. Central African time. And on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Human rights monitors have received reports of mass killings, abductions, recruitment of child soldiers and other abuses as families continue to flee communities surrounding Mosul in Iraq. Government forces backed by allies have launched an offensive to free the northern city from the terrorist group ISIL. Basma Bagol has been speaking to Rueda al Hari a senior human rights official at the UN mission in Iraq, UNAMI. Ten days ago, the Mosul operation to reclaim all areas under the control of the so-called Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant started. And so far, UNAMI monitors on the ground and representative of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Iraq are following on uh, major violations and abuses by the so-called uh, Islamic State uh, ISIL members. We've received, you know, a lot of uh, information about uh, mass killings in areas under their control and in areas that uh, have been claimed. We've received information about mass abduction with the aim of taking civilians and uh, thousands of families and use them as a human shield uh, later on in the military operations. We've received a lot of information about intimidation of civilians and uh, forcible uh, displacement, including in Mosul. I mean, the list is, uh, is long. When we talk about uh, abuses and violations perpetrated by ISIL members, including, sadly, 
recruitment and use of uh, child soldiers. Uh, we received recently information that in addition to uh, uh, the pattern that has been used by the uh, Takfiri group in using and recruiting uh, child soldiers, uh, there has been some uh, new waves of recruitment in Mosul after the start of the operation. How many people fled the city since the beginning of the operations? Uh, we received so far information from the uh, Organization of Migration that some uh, 2,640 families have fled areas in southern Mosul. That would be 7,400 individuals. So displacement within sub-districts and districts surrounding Mosul, but not from Mosul city. What are the measures that your office is taking in terms of the unexpected situations that are emerging during the Mosul operations? Well, a lot of measures on many levels. To start with uh, appealing uh, to all parties to the conflict to respect international norms when it comes to respecting the code of conduct and uh, respecting norms of international law and international humanitarian law uh, when conducting the operations. In addition to that, we ensure that, uh, in particular, vetting and screening of civilians who would flee the city of Mosul, in particular, would uh, take place in line with international norms. And in fact, the uh, UNAMI representative in Iraq already communicated these principles to the government, whether in the federal government or in Kurdistan government. How about uh, reports indicate that violations are being committed against civilians fled the city by certain militias? Uh, we received allegations of uh, such reports and they're under verification. You know that we have a very meticulous methodology when it comes to uh, verifying uh, all accounts that we receive. And uh, these uh, cases are still under verification. We've received some allegations stating that, you know, perhaps federal police has been involved in the killing of a number of civilians, but this is still under verification. What are the challenges facing your office in Iraq in terms of the situation now? You know, challenges ahead are perhaps uh, access to, you know, if it's on the humanitarian side, then it's access to people in need and uh, you know, civilians that uh, are mostly affected. On major sides, on the reconciliation side, on the political side, ensuring that, uh, you know, uh, people would return to their liberated area in a dignified manner. As for human rights, perhaps the main challenge would be accountability. And before talking about reconciliation, we have to ensure that accountability measures are in place. And this would mean that you would have the right legal framework, the right legality that would allow for all perpetrators of most serious crimes to be tried. So we have the right legal framework in Iraq to try, for instance, al-Baghdadi, for uh, crimes that the High Commission for Human Rights uh, described as amounting to war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide. Do we have the right legal framework for that? So the question is that UNAMI is actually currently working on this, in particular with the government, with the federal government, with the Kurdistan government, as to have the right legal framework, as to provide the court with the right jurisdiction, giving those domestic courts the right to try perpetrators under international law, under international crimes. That was Ruweda Al-Hari, a senior human rights official at the UN mission in Iraq, speaking to UN Radio's Basma Bagol. It's 8.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zorza. Africa Amuka. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana, reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa 
This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.30 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you in the headlines. South Africa's ambassador to the United Nations has met with the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to explain the country's reason for withdrawing as a party to the Rome Statute. A man who police have described as a criminal has been shot dead outside the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi, Kenya. And Liberian President Eileen Johnson-Salif has called on the international community to put more investments into the eye, healthcare and research field to ensure that unnecessary blindness and visual impairment is eradicated worldwide. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. South Africa's Department of Water and Sanitation has dismissed reports that the current water challenges facing the country is caused by the delay in the Lesotho Highlands Water Project Phase 2. The department says this is misleading, as the project was never meant to be operational in the year 2016. Being the largest water project of its kind due for implementation in the world currently, the Phase 2 project is set to guarantee to benefit the national, regional and international interests of South Africa and Lesotho. Sputnik Ratau, media liaison director at the Department of Water and Sanitation, explains. I'm not sure when people talk about the delay, what they are referring to. You must remember that this project it has always been a multi-year project, starting way back in the 80s. And what we are talking about now is the implementation of phase two of the project, which was signed uh, between the two countries by the President of South Africa and by King Lizia of the Kingdom of Lesotho about two years ago or so. That process is underway. Obviously, there is a lot that needed to, that needs to happen before the actual pro, uh, uh, project itself kicks in, including the issues of, you know, your tender processes and all of those things. And what, what we are saying, and I think the Minister has articulated this a couple of times, that we are still looking at the availability of water from the second phase in and around uh, the year 2020-2022 or so. People must also remember that uh, construction projects by their own nature are not necessarily something that you can always work within certain uh, time constraints. The, the ideal is there always in your planning, but the actual construction and everything that deals with it will never work according to specific timelines. The African continent is currently under severe drought um, because it's important to mention that drought is not only uh, uh, um, an environmental challenge that South Africa is undergoing, but across the region, but also in some parts of the, the continent have been affected by drought. And with the completion of this project only expected to be in 2025, uh, tell us about some of the projects that the, the department is currently um, working on to ensure that there isn't any uh, water shortages in the country? Well, we must understand that the drought that we are experiencing is not even just South African. It's a regional drought. And therefore, it is something that we, we all are experiencing as the South and African development community. And obviously, part of what we, we have been doing as part of our planning processes is to look at what kind of other water sources we could be able to access as part of our water mix. We know that uh, South Africa depends primarily on rainwater for its water supply. But obviously we have to look at other uh, new sources, including groundwater, which we believe that we have not really been able to exploit sufficiently when you look at the amount of groundwater that we are using. We are also looking at whether we can be able to implement more of the desalination that is being availed worldwide. 
But obviously that has got uh, considerations with regard to the kind of technologies that are available, but also the question of the funding that must be uh, taken into consideration as well before we can even put the project on the ground. So it is some of those things, but we also are working together with our colleagues from other countries with regard to what we call the transboundary water sources, where we share water with some other countries. We know that South Africa shares water with about seven countries around itself, in which includes uh, Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Lesotho, and Swaziland, just to name a few. So we, we are looking at all of those to be able to see whether we can continue to make sure that we have security of water supply going forward. Would you say that South Africans are generally a people who use water efficiently? Are they big on, on, on saving water and have all the campaigns that the department have been having being effective in as far as perhaps reducing the rate at which um, water has been used? South Africans are not in the, in the nature of, of water saving. And we can see that right now with the drought that is happening, with the messaging that we have been able to put out. But also in the, in the situation where we have begun implementing water restrictions. For instance, in housing, up to now, we haven't reached the level that we were hoping that we will reach in terms of the water savings that, or rather water restrictions that we have requested uh, rainwater to start implementing together with our municipalities. So we, in, in essence, we are not consciously water saving nation. We're also looking at encouraging people to reuse and recycle water mm. because that is another means that we can be able to, to assist the water supply. That was Sputnik Ratao, Media Liaison Director at the Department of Water and Sanitation, speaking to Kumutomo Pulani. Landowners, farmers and individuals from the indigenous communities in Australia are susceptible to harassment by mining companies. This according to UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights Defenders, Michelle Forst, who has just concluded a working visit to the country. Forst says these companies often play a tricky role as the farmers fight for their rights. In the Australian capital, Canberra, Julia Dean asked Forrest about the situation facing the farmers. I had in mind um, the smiles, the eyes, the faces of the people I met with. I keep in mind uh, the moving testimonies, stories that they told me, like harassment by, by companies, for instance, uh, targeting them, trying to push them to sell the, the piece of land. This is mining, mining companies? Mining companies. Yeah. They play uh, a tricky role in, in Australia. As I said, I also had a meeting with Mining Council Australia to discuss that, and they denied, in fact, everything. They gave me a nice brochure saying that uh, the membership have commitments uh, to respect the rights of populations affected communities. But in fact, when you speak with those people, you say that you see that uh, it's not the case. We also spoke uh, with uh, simple landowners that in fact became defenders uh, because themselves as well have been uh, directly targeted by companies, uh, saying that we simply want to explore your piece of land. They would say no, and they cannot oppose to exploration. By law. By law. There is uh, no impact assessment of the exploration in terms of human rights, in terms of uh, affecting the environment. And then where they are consulted, they don't have access to the information, and then it's too late. The people that you're talking about who are defending their land, and uh, are they finding support or are they finding it difficult in terms of being human rights defenders on these issues? I mean, for them, that's difficult because they don't, they don't know the law. Mm-hmm. Lawyers are coming from companies or from the government. This could be remote, uh, remote communities. It could be remote communities. communities. And then uh, they've been told that uh, this is the law. Uh, you cannot oppose the law. Uh, while they don't know the law, they don't have seen the law, they have no legal advice. Uh, that's costly. They don't dare to hire lawyers to uh, uh, advise them. And when they, they re- do realize that things might happen, it's too late. Things have happened. And for, for instance, the delay uh, by which they could give a reply to a proper consultations has expired, so it's too late, and they have not received a proper advice from lawyers. And that's why they, then they come to legal centres, to NGOs, to civil society organisations, to some lawyers that are working pro bono, and I must pay tribute to those lawyers in Australia that give also pro bono work for those communities, but sometimes and very often it's too late for them. 
That was Michelle Forst, UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights Defenders, speaking to UN Radio's Julia Dean. Although air travel accounts for less than 2% of the emissions that contribute to global warming, the aviation industry is doing its part to protect the environment. As according to the Secretary-General of the International Civil Aviation Organization, Dr. Liu Fang, the aviation industry recently announced that from 2020, it will offset or balance any increases in carbon dioxide emissions by planting trees or through other clean energy projects. Hao Chang caught up with Dr. Liu on the margins of the recent UN Conference on Sustainable Urban Development, known as Habitat 3, held in Quito, Ecuador. The ICAO chief outlined some of the innovative measures happening in air transportation that address global environmental concerns. Our member states adopted the first ever global market-based measures to mitigate the emissions caused by international flights. That is the first ever major industry sector to take these measures to tackle environment issue. In addition to that, our organization also takes basket measures to mitigate the impact due to aviation to the environment. These measures include innovative measures, innovative technologies, include we just adopted new standards for CO2 emissions for new aircraft. Having said that, all these efforts will try to reduce CO2 emissions from our international flights, which represents only 1.3% of the overall uh, emissions around the world. But you can see our sector really make a firm determination to ensure our future and our planet is sustainable. So talking about sustainable development goals, leaving no one behind, as you know, is at its core. So right now we have more than one billion people in this world experience some form of disability, and many face difficulties and barriers when traveling. So what would you recommend in order to make urban development inclusive of and accessible to persons with disabilities? Aviation, like all other transportation modes, should recognize and accommodate this passenger segment. We develop guidelines for the states to introduce in their policies in order to ensure all the stage and segment of air travel could be accommodated to people with disability. And also we have some questions submitted by our social media fans. They wanted to know uh, what global leaders like you are thinking about when it comes to sustainable urban development. So one of the questions is, which three words come to mind when you think about sustainable cities? Connected, inclusive, dynamic. The city, if connected locally and globally, by all means of transportation, will make the city impress the old world and make the people to be connected and they can understand better, increase and enhance the friendship. And this inclusive, that means can provide all facilities to, to, be, to accommodate all the needs and expectations of the people in the city. Another question is, what is the most important thing we can do to make cities more livable and sustainable. All the UN organizations now we are all strive to work very closely to implement 2030 agenda on sustainable development goals. What I would like to see the older states work together with all the UN organizations with their own responsibilities in their respective areas working together and then I think the whole the world including urban development and cities, we can be having the better planning and have better synergies and well-coordinated, harmonized, so we can have the better standards of living and to have the better development.
for all the world. That was Dr. Liu Fang, Secretary General of the International Civil Aviation Organization, speaking to UN Radio's Hao Chang. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Enam Tabisolohoko. The Zimbabwean government is struggling to demystify fears associated with the introduction of the controversial bond notes. Zimbabweans have rejected the paper money meant to cure the cash shortages. Critics equate the bond notes to the now defunct Zimbabwean dollar, evoking nightmares of the 2008 hyperinflation and economic ruin. Samuel Muchemo reports. Authorities in the Zimbabwean financial sector on Thursday morning held a breakfast meeting in the capital ahead of the introduction of the bond notes anytime soon. The Reserve Bank Governor Dr. John Mangujiga said the government has good intentions by introducing the bond notes in order to cure cash shortages. Zambia's state-owned power firm Zesco has asked mining companies to cut back on electricity usage due to reduced generation. This follows a drop in water levels at hydropower stations and ongoing engineering upgrades. Zesco says they have asked mining companies, who are their largest customers, to reduce the usage of the electricity. Mining companies operating in Zambia include Glencore, First Quantum Minerals, Vendetta Resources and Barrick Gold. A forum on Africa has been told the continent's food import bill could go up to 110 billion US dollars by 2025 unless post-harvest losses are dealt with through behavior change approaches. Experts spoke on Wednesday during a meeting convened to assess gains of the Yieldwise initiative by Rockefeller. They said the bill, which stands at $35 billion, has been aggravated by food losses on the continent. South Africa's trade union AMCU says Anglo-American Platinum's wage offer of a 7% increase will enable its members to survive a tough economy. However, the union members and Amplet's mine in Mokopane in Limpopo province have embarked on a strike, saying they are unhappy with the wage deal. They say it does not include an increase in housing allowance. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.88 to the South African rand, 10.48 in Botswana, 9.76 in Zambia, 8.1 to the British pound, 9.1 to the euro. Gold $1,271, platinum $969 per ounce, a brand crude $50, $0.50 a barrel. It's Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our sports updates up next with Figi Lilingwati. In our sports update this hour, we continue with football news. The pressure to qualify for the 2018 FIFA World Cup in Russia has forced Bafana Bafana head coach Ifram Sheikh Mashaba to go for an unknown Dutch-born striker last first week as he prepares for a clash against Group D leader Senegal next month. Announcing his 25-man squad to play the Teranga Lions on the 12th of November at the Pitamukaba Stadium in South Africa's Limpopo province, Mashaba says, Phil Vig, who is now playing for Darren Keats' former Belgian club KV Kordeik, is a player they have been monitoring and hoping he will ease their goal-scoring problems. Mashaba has dropped Tamsang Kabuza to see what Feldweg can offer after he scored 14 goals in 36 matches when he was on loan at Dutch side P.E. Zwale last season. Lars, we've been monitoring him. 
when we are still with Nottingham. So he has moved to Belgium. A good striker, big boy, busy in the box there, can hold, can score as well. So we felt we need to bring him in in this camp. The 25-year-old was born in Holland and would be coming to South Africa for the first time, having obtained the South African passport through his South African-born father. And the Senegal game is a must-win for Bashaba in particular. Anything less than a win could see him vacating the seat. Bashaba makes it known that they have already studied their star-studded opposition. We have been sitting, training hard to be able to throw our javelin as far as Russia over all these other countries. We are, we are working hard. We want to win all our matches. Win all our matches. Because this thing of saying if we draw here and lose here and going to be a problem for us. We've got to start with this coming game against uh, Senegal. Like uh, Dr. Morake has indicated, they are sitting on the top, at the top of the lock with three points, we're behind them with one point. So what we need to do is to make sure we win and sit them there, then we go above them. We sit on four points. That is possible. We can do that. We can do that. We have watched their games, the three past games they played uh, and they won all the three games, all with two zero margin. They played Namibia, they beat them two. They played uh, Cape Verde, they beat them two. So it says we've got to go out of there, spitting fire and fighting, make sure we win that game. The players are aware as well what it means to win this coming game. The Confederation of Southern African Football, COSAFA Chief Operations Officer, Sue Destombes, has joined a countless list of prominent officials who have congratulated Mamelodi Sundowns on being crowned a 2016 African Champions. Destombes added a voice during the launch and a draw of COSAFA Under-20 Youth Championships to be held in Northwest in December. From the Kasafa perspective, even though we may not directly have uh, had influence on all of the Amasangwana, uh, we know that there are some players who have come at some point in time through a Kasafa uh, championship, whether it be under 17, under 20, or indeed our senior tournament, because so many of the of the players today, you know, who are playing in the PSL and other professional teams uh, or, or leagues, um, have actually got their, uh, you know, made their made their entry or, or been discovered through a Kasafa tournament but nevertheless you know um, sundowns belongs to the region um, and and we as uh, you know as the regional uh, um, confederation are just absolutely over the moon uh, that uh, that the uh, champions league trophy has come back to uh, to this neck of the woods South African Premiership side Mamelodi Sundowns goalkeeper Dennis Nyango is to be presented with a land title by his football association for becoming the first Ugandan to win the CAF Champions League Onyango was instrumental in Down's victory. And the president of FUFA, the Federation of Uganda Football Association, Moses Magogo, has said the keeper will receive the prime piece of land in the country as a reward for his feats. And in cricket news, Kenya is set to play its first international cricket at home in four years against Hong Kong in a World Cricket League qualifier from the 18th to the 20th of November at the Gymkhana Club ground. The 50 overs will be the first since a series of attacks blamed on terrorists hit the capital in 2012. Kenya and Hong Kong have each played six matches in the World Cricket League Championships, which also involve Scotland, Namibia, the Netherlands, Papua New Guinea, Nepal and the United Arab Emirates. The top four countries will qualify to play in the 2019 World Cup in England and Wales. Kenya will play Nepal after Hong Kong in the series. And finally, with golf news, Richard or oh, Richard Rada Kalbeck is the perhaps surprise leader of the HSBC champions in Shanghai, playing a WGC event for the first time. The Swede has swept to an opening 64 for eight under par and holds a one-stroke lead over Ricky Fowler. Nick Dyer reports. The former Italian Open champions into the top 30 on the race to Dubai on the back of a series of top 10 finishes this season and he's demonstrated that improvement in his game to fire nine birdies and keep a stellar field at bay. He says he went for an aggressive approach on a Shoshang course battered and softened by heavy rain. It's paid off, not phased by the quality of the opposition. 
Fowler was regarded as one of the Priavane favourites, and his 65, as him in turn, won clear of the defending champion Russell Knox, who won on his first visit to the tournament, and he's determined to enjoy everything about the defence. While Henrik Stenson and Adam Scott are among the contenders, Rory McIlroy will be among those feeling there's plenty of ground to make up from one under par. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. South Africa might reconsider its withdrawal from the ICC and concerns over growing tension within South Africa's ruling African National Congress. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzora Magadza and Komutsu Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of our folding news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is African Roots with a song titled Jabula.
In the headlines, UN chief offers to work with South Africa through the state parties to address its concerns regarding the International Criminal Court. A man has been shot dead outside the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi after attacking a Kenyan police officer. And Liberian President Elian Johnson Salif calls on the international community to put more investments into the eye, healthcare and research field. A very good morning to you.